Hello, and welcome to the Geekiest Podcast, where we sit around and talk to our friends about all things geeky, all the while giving each other geek points to determine who is the geekiest. Welcome to the Geekiest. My name's Joseph. My pronouns are he, him. I'm Will, he, him. Uh, my name's Grant, and I go by he, him, or really anything you feel like. Welcome back, Grant. For those who uh, have a bit of a memory for the show, you will recognize that we spoke with Grant uh, a few months back about his uh, Kickstarter for Beowulf episode, uh, issue number two. Uh, and uh, it seems like just in time for spooky season. Uh, Grant and his team of collaborators are bringing a Kickstarter memoirs of the morbid uh, out to out to the public. So uh, welcome back, Grant. Thank you so much. It's nice to be back. <laughs> so uh, just from the name, going to say, going to wager that this uh, this book is uh, a, a bit different than, say, Beowulf. Yeah, so this is more of the horror genre. Beowulf is, of course, the uh, modern fantasy genre. Uh, this is marked mature for mature readers. Honestly, it's really not that that violent. There, there were just the uh, a few of the writers wanted to use some four letter words, so. Um, and rather than argue with them about that, I, I just put the form mature readers thing on. It's the uh, it's the the PG thirteen uh, versus R rated debate over there. Yeah, I would say it's more like a hard PG thirteen than or or maybe a light R rating than than a hard R rating. Cool. Uh, so it is an anthology book, and uh, you said of the horror genre and. Uh, looking at the Kickstarter page, uh, you you reference uh, good old EC horror comics. Uh, exactly. So that was your your jumping off point for inspiration, right? If you look at the covers, they are in the uh, the template of maybe a little bit modernized version of the the old EC comics. You know, with Kind of like the title at the top, then like a smaller picture on on the left of one of the stories, and then like a bigger image towards the middle. Um, and the stories, I wasn't slavish to making sure that they were an homage to like the EC comics, but I would say they all kind of kind of fall in line with that. Say so this had it, looking at some of the art and at the layout. It kind of has a, a uh, it has a tales from the clip crypt feel to it. Yeah, especially the the top images, like the ones that are towards the top of the, of the Kickstarter page. And I'm, uh, I don't know if you want to include like a link or anything. I, yeah, we will definitely have a link <laughs> to the Kickstarter page. So, well, so folks people wants, know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so folks can see what we're talking about, and also, uh, you know. 
go out there and support. Yeah, some of the so what I was saying was some of the art has more of a retro feel than other art, but uh, like I said, I I didn't want to be like slavish about about making it a um, I didn't want to make it slavishly in the style of of the the old EC comics from the 40s and 50s. Now, if you guys, if anybody in your audience doesn't know what I'm talking about when I say EC comics. Um, we're talking about like Vault of Horror. Basically, if you've if you've ever seen like a picture of like old black and white horror comic books from like the 40s and 50s, the ones that almost ended up getting comic books outlawed. Um, stuff. Probably your best reference point would be the HBO series um, Tales from the Crypt. That TV show was based on a comic book from the 40s and 50s called Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting you bring it up because we were uh, we were discussing Tales from the Crypt uh, last week. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, it is the spooky season. It is the spooky season. Were you talking about the comic book or the TV show? Uh, we were. I, I we were talking more about the TV show and even the. Uh, the the spinoff movies that uh, came from it, uh, <laughs> as we were we were going through and putting kind of a uh, spooky season uh, viewing list. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, it was kind of our our because uh, one of the channels uh, was a freeform put yeah. out put out the thirty one days of of Halloween um, with Hocus Pocus being on it about seventy two times. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So we had to come up with our own list, and, and I think we came up with a pretty good one. I think so. I think so. I actually know somebody who would agree with that assessment of what you watch during Halloween. Because I have a friend whose uh, cat is named Binks. But <gasps> if you anything about how much she loves Hocus Pocus, your friend gets a geek point. <laughs> Thanks. That's awesome. <laughs> I'll let her know the next time I see her. So, uh, we, your, how many stories are in uh, the memoirs of the morbid? There's, there's five stories, the same as there is uh, five covers, um, and each, each one is self-contained. They're on average about ten or eleven pages per story. Cool, cool. And uh, your collaborators on these? Uh... Oh boy, we have we have a bunch. Uh, so Brian K. Morris, he's an independent. He's an also also an independent comic book writer. He also does his own YouTube show. Uh, Matt Miner worked on the comic book. Matt was actually the one I was most nervous about talking to because he has the little blue check mark next to his name on Twitter. Mm. He's done a lot of stuff. Uh, the thing that he's probably most famous for is he did the Guar comic book that came out a couple <laughs> years ago. Wow. Um, so then there's Ian Mondrick. He's actually going to have a, a comic book coming out the same time. He does um comic book every halloween called the the tomb series 
uh, originally it was, I think, Tomb of the Red Horse, and then it became Tomb of the White Horse. Uh, who else? Oh, Dave Schuler. Dave Schuler is a friend of mine from college. This is actually his first published work. And then, uh, of course, I wrote one of the stories. I didn't draw my story, but I uh, write the in. I drew, I write and draw like the narrator scenes. So I also did a little bit of art on this comic book. Yeah, I'm really digging these. I'm really digging these covers. Uh, I, I especially like the the coaxial cover. That is just absolutely oh god. So the story with the covers was these are all people that I just I've always liked their art and I follow them on Twitter and I knew I was going to do a horror comic book and I said um I I said you know what I'm just going to take a stab in the dark maybe I mean they might say yes they might say no I figured they were probably going to say no, and a lot more of them said yes than said no. And I mean, not, and that's not to say that some people didn't say no, but you know, you just have to ask enough people that it doesn't matter if a couple say no. You know what I mean? Oh, wise man once said that if you if if you never ask the question, the answer is always no. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I really like the coax the coaxial one, uh, the one with the evil squirrel. Um, I mean, I like all of them. I really can't pick a favorite. And you're the 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 artists doing your doing the covers and doing the the work. Any any names we might know? So Clay McCormack, he has also worked with Matt Miner on a couple of comic books. He's working on a comic book right now for for uh, Waxworks called Poser. And that's how he kind of got involved in the comic book. Um, Mark Olivant, he's done a million stuff. He's worked for he worked for Vertigo before that went away, and he's also done a few th- projects for uh, Dark Horse. Um, the guy who did the trench coat killer cover. Simon, and I'm going to butcher his name, Simon Guglamini, uh, he's, done, he's done a lot of projects for Image, and he actually adapted uh, some stories that John Carpenter had and cool. turned into comic book form. Yeah, so these are, like, these are um, not necessarily amateur guys. These are guys who have, like... Relatively nice resumes. That's really cool. Yeah, like <laughs> that coaxial cover is that is pretty disturbing. Badass, isn't it? <laughs> I I gotta say though, I I I like the the trench coat killer cover with the kid with, with the 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 young man holding a comic that is the comic, and right. in the, I mean just like that that folding in on itself idea that's uh so yeah so that one was based on the story that i wrote what the idea behind that is it's about a kid who's reading a comic book and all of a sudden the comic book starts to come to life like stuff that's happening in like he starts to notice like pieces of dialogue in the comic book um you know 
his mom says almost the exact same words to him. <laughs> and um, obviously he's very creeped out by it, especially when, you know, people start getting murdered in the comic book, you know. And he's, he clearly starts losing some sleep. And I won't give, I won't give away the ending of, of the story. You have to uh, back on Twitter if you want to find out, you know, mm-hmm. is he going crazy or, or is stuff in the comic book actually coming to life? I, I, I'm always down for one of those uh, kind of mind, uh, mind fucks, you know, where it's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're just what's real, what isn't. Um, it reminds me of a screenwriting class I took in, in college where uh, the professor read to us one of his screenplays that he had submitted. And it was kind of one of these where, you know, you're looking through the, you, he was like the back, back when you used to have to get pictures developed and you slip it, you know, the, the main character slipping through the pictures. And all of a sudden there's always, there's like this guy walking up behind him and, you know, turns around and, you know, there's the, the creepy guy from it. It was a, always, always enjoyed that sort of uh, playing with reality. So that, that's oh. right up my might, alley there. You might like this story then. So, uh, so last time you were here, we were we were talking about Beowulf. Uh, how did how did that end up going? Uh, so issue two life? got funded, and um, I'm also kind of simultaneously working on issue three. Um, issue three is actually almost done, but I just I I can't release it until after Morbid. Yeah, is on. And even then, I might, I, I don't know, I'm debating on whether or not I want to release it at Christmas time, just because everybody's always so busy that time of year. Yeah, I may wait until after Christmas, yeah. But very, very glad to hear that you, that it backed. Um, I know, I think when we talked, it was, I don't know if you, you I think you were, you were close, but it, we, we weren't, I think we had, you had fully gotten there. So glad to hear it backed. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was really right, like right on the the borderline. Yep. Um, and and as usual, it, it looks like with you, everything is is done and ready to go. Because uh, I noticed that the bottom, uh, the idea is if this funds, uh, pretty quick turnaround on the printing. Exactly. Generally. Yeah, that's that's a big thing for me. Um, I know different people feel differently about that. For me, when I when I back a Kickstarter, I like to know that it's ready to go. Uh, it's it's just kind of a comfort thing for me. Yeah, I think I I, I think more and more, especially for the, in, in the indie comic uh, market, you know, as as much as this is you know as Kickstarter is for for funding projects. Uh, it seems like for the indie comic market, this really is uh, viewed more as almost a, as like a pre-order, um, which I'm sure has both its, you know, its positive and negatives. I mean, trying to get things done, you know, say early in the pandemic when, you know, depending where your printer was located, that could have been a uh, ordeal and a half. Uh, right. But. Uh, yeah, it's it's funny how Kickstarter started out as a way to fund um it started out a way as a way to fund your 
your uh, comic book. And then it quickly kind of morphed more into, um, like you said, kind of a, it's more of a uh, pre-order. Um, and I think that that's just the nature of the beast in that, um, I mean, I'll, I'll just come right out and say it. Like, I mean, people were, people were waiting two to three years for their comic book and they were fed up with that. I, I, I know I have, and I probably mentioned it before on the show, but I've had a, I had a friend who backed a board game and it took, I think he said at the end, it took about five years, um, to finally get, uh, the, the, the board game in question. Um, and his experience, you know, not, not great communication. Um, and then when it arrived, he was not not really impressed with the uh material quality of it so i, I know mm. those sorts of things make you know early on and you know early on with kickstarter kind of made some folks a little uh a little gun shy about backing things right. and, yeah yeah um and it's funny it's it's one of those things where it's like after five years he probably forgot that he ever backed this kickstarter oh yeah yeah, it was uh he actually for a bit it was more of the it would just frustrate him all the time that he was you know, he had this out there and he was waiting for it because I'm trying to remember what the game was, but it was one of these where it was a game that really appealed to his uh like his style of gaming and right. like his interests and he was just unhappy about the, about the whole situation and when it came, like I said that the quality was wasn't like, what he expected so it was like right up his alley and he was mm-hmm. yeah i can imagine that being frustrating yep but uh it's i'm you know we've had a, a pretty good number of indie comic uh creators on and it seems like uh you all are really good at having everything ready to go to the printers as soon as the uh project funds and and that can happen and i i know every time we talk uh to to a creator it's always you know i'm i'm tipping my hat to that because you know got to get the comic book into someone's hands as quick as possible because uh you know i i think for sometimes with with comics and and material like that it's the longer you wait the the less kind of i guess like less sizzle on the steak you know you're yeah i mean when you um, when you're doing a Kickstarter, you're asking your audience at least to wait, to wait at least two weeks, um, because it takes two weeks for you to get your funding, and then however long it takes to get it, it printed, which could be you know another two or three weeks. So you're asking your audience to wait at least a month, and then. Um, as opposed to, you know, if they buy it in a comic book shop where they get it immediately. So, um, you know, I mean, one thing I always say is, I mean, people who are willing to take a chance on stuff they found on Kickstarter are are definitely cool in my book. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's uh, one of the things I do, and I'll pull back a little curtain on the show, 
but uh, I, I do from time to time go onto Kickstarter, look at you know projects that are going to be coming out or projects that have just launched, and reach out to those creators. And uh, you know because especially things that catch my eye, stuff you know indie comics, indie uh, game design stuff. Just you know I want to I want to get you know I want to get these things out in front of people so that we can support you know everyone making. Uh, you know, making things that aren't having to rely on big, uh, you know, a big company to say, yeah, we want to give your your idea a chance. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean that's the beauty of Kickstarter. I mean, I mean, Kickstarter has given creators a way to make comic books and get them seen by people. Um, you don't have to be, you know, Jerry Siegel. And Joe Schuster, you know, living in a one-bedroom apartment while your while your publishers are getting rich off your creation. I mean, that's the beauty of Kickstarter. Absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, it, it's nice to recognize the creators of these things. Uh, and it's also nice to see, you know, from my standpoint, you know, creators having more control over, you know, what they're doing. Uh, because I think that's one of the other problems is you might create a character, you know, for one of the big companies. And like we're seeing now, there's that lawsuit that uh, Marvel uh, and and families of creators and some of the creators are having now where, you know, the who owns who owns this character, you know, has the time expired? Was it work for hire? And, you know, has have people been properly um properly compensated for the work they did you know and that's always one of those questions it's like you know if you're steve ditko's family or or stanley's family how do you how 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 do you accurately compensate for spider-man when the amount of money that the spider-man properties have brought in is you know in the billions yeah i mean i think um like like the granddaughter the granddaughter of Bill Finger, I think they gave her fifty thousand dollars for Batman v Superman. At least that's I mean, I I shouldn't say that because I don't know that that's known for a fact. But I that was the speculation that they gave her fifty thousand dollars on a movie that made six hundred million dollars. And her grandfather created one of like one of the two main characters of that movie um and i mean the and i I mean i think the amount of fifty thousand dollars is it's almost like the perfect number where it's just like it's big enough to sound like a lot to a single mother whereas and it's small enough that it's not actually gonna like affect dc comics uh bottom line at all yeah um i think i think a previous guest of ours uh he had been uh doing some of the this is a couple years back now doing some of the cons and stuff and got to know i think her name is athena uh and yeah i forget who like she was there and i think maybe the attorney that she was working with to get those those rights and recognitions and uh yeah it it is, and I mean, and and you mentioned uh, Siegel and Schuster, and, and you know, 
the there's a you know the story out there is you know of uh was it denny o'neill no uh neil adams uh neil adams is you know was was key in getting them some sort of compensation when they were made when when warner brothers in dc was making uh the the first superman movie um and, and i know uh, i've I know Neil Adams covered it on um, Kevin Smith's podcast, which is now Batman Beyond. I think at the time it was Batman on Batman, but he changed it up. But uh, uh, they did a two or three part interview and Neil Adams was like, how, you know, how are these how are these folks who created, you know, arguably one of the best known, you know, characters and and history, you know, as you said, living in, you know, a studio apartment or a one bedroom apartment. Uh, I think one of them was like working as a janitor or something at the time. And it was just like, it, it's, it's an even worse story than that. The, yeah. I can't remember if it was, if it, if it was Jerry Siegel or Joe Schuster, he was a delivery man. He was working as a delivery man and he had to deliver a package to the DC comics office and he went in kind of like trying to cover his face because he was like so embarrassed. And the publisher, the the um, the editor who fired him, recognized him, and he said to him, and he said he saw that his jacket was all all beat up, and I think he gave him like forty or fifty dollars for a new jacket. So yeah, so that's apparently creating a a character that has probably, I mean, at this point has probably made them billions. It Not was worth $40 to easily, him. easily billion. Yeah. Oh, certainly billions. Cause I mean, every time a movie, a Superman movie comes out, it makes at least six or $700 million. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Crazy story. But then I mean, but, um, just, just this original 1978 Superman movie. Uh, domestic box office was 134 million dollars. Right, and adjusted for inflation, that's I mean, that's probably close to a billion dollars. Um, but the weird part of that story is that Steve Ditko actually had, uh, while he was still alive, um, people actually there were lawyers who actually went to Steve Ditko and asked him and said, you know, we'll help you sue Marvel, and he wanted nothing to do with it. He um, he had some weird moral objection to royalties, or I don't know. I don't. I don't understand it. He's a follower of um, Anne Rand, um, the woman okay. who wrote uh, Atlas Shrugged. So I, I don't a hundred percent understand her philosophy in life, but for whatever reason. Um, he had a moral objection to royalties. Interesting. He's a very he was a very very strange man. Yeah, I know he was. Uh, he was definitely um, very hard to get interviews out of. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's one of these things though where you're just like you know they've made enough money off of all of these folks' um, work, their creations, spreading out a little, and like you said. You know, fifty thousand to you or me or you know most most folks. That's a 
that's a that's a nice little chunk that uh you know pay down the pay down the mortgage or knock out student loans or whatever um but for you know a warner a, a time warner or warner entertainment or whatever they're called these days as a division of at&t um you know that's a the drop in the bucket you know they probably yeah. lose they, they probably lose more in you know office supply theft in a year right. than, than pay that you know but and and that's i mean that's what the the didgo family is hoping for i mean i don't think that they actually think that they're going to get the rights to spider-man back um they think that maybe maybe what they're what they're really hoping for is they're hoping that um the publicity around this will be bad enough that marvel will just give them like 60 or 70 thousand dollars just to get them to go away basically yeah it's uh what gets me is they then marvel then turns around and sues the estates uh after um after the the initial lawsuits are filed um because so the original original claim is for uh copyright transfer termination um so i guess marvel had to file suit uh to claim that the termination notices are improper and uh you know they're they're working under the position that all all of these things are created as work for hire and so the the copyrights are theirs to begin with um and even if that's you know whether or not i'm i'm not a not a copyright attorney uh, i did take copyright law class in college but you know even if they are correct doesn't look good to me that you know you're you're suing you know you you're counter suing um you know Stan Lee's brother and the Ditko estate and uh you know a couple other creators I don't know this just... billion dollar industry is mm-hmm. is doing like people like like I said um I don't know if she still is but I remember at the time Bill Finger's granddaughter was a waitress and and like I said she was a sing- she is a single mom so yeah that that looks really great for a billion dollar corporation to be suing a single mom who's a waitress yeah absolutely um and i know yeah she i think she might even be from or lived down here for a short bit but down here in florida because you know everybody everybody takes a little time down here it seems eventually Um, well yeah the interesting thing is that i only live i only live about an hour away from where Steve Ditko was born. And I'm surprised that when I talk to people from he's from he's from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour away from Johnstown, PA. But you know, doing conventions and stuff, I meet a lot of people from Johnstown. And I always ask them what they think of, you know, being from the same town as, you know, the co creator of Spider Man. And it's amazing to me how few people know that he was born in the same town as them. Hmm. I mean, I've even talked to a few people who said that Spider-Man was their favorite superhero, and they didn't even know that they were born in the same town as the co-creator of of Spider-Man. That is definitely kind of interesting. 
know, it's like I know. I think uh, I think Cleveland. I although I know one of the Schuster and Siegel was from. I think actually both of them are from Canada, but they, you know, don't want to get this wrong. Uh, no, well, uh, Siegel was from Jerry Siegel was from Cleveland, and I know they've done a a big, you know, a big honoring of him and stuff in the past. Most of the honoring is actually, um, um, what is it in Metropolis? Is that Metropolis, Idaho, or uh, Metropolis, Kansas? I think Metropolis, Kansas. Okay, uh, but there is a city called Metropolis that has mm-hmm. a statue. Of, they have a, I think they have a statue of Christopher Reeves because legally they can't make a statue of Superman. Like it's labeled, this is Christopher Reeves. Christopher Reeves. I, mean, I mean, seriously, how how really sad is that? <laughs> I, I, yep. And when it comes down, it, it, and that's what it all comes down. It comes down to money. Uh, these corporations don't want to give anything away for free. Uh, I've I've heard of the the the, the Mouse Corporation uh, mm-hmm. suing daycare centers for having cutouts that they purchased <laughs> that they mm-hmm. let me say this again cutouts that they purchased on the side of a building for Christmas. Oh um there was near where I went to high school there was a daycare that had um Disney characters um on the you know painted on the outside of it and the the House of Mouse took them to court and funny i try to remember i believe it was uh warner brothers actually turned around and contacted them and was like hey if you you know if you would like to instead of having disney characters on the wall have you know looney tunes characters on your walls we're fine with it you know go ahead so right funny. And, and and i would understand if this was okay they they, they painted them on it's a permanent thing. No, these are Christmas mm-hmm. decorations that they went to the store and purchased. Yep. Is that crazy or what? Yep. It's just when it comes to these, you know, super gigantic corporations, if you interfere with their making money, even if they made money off of you, how dare you? Yep. Uh, and and I was just doing a little. Uh, it is Metropolis, Illinois, that has the superman statue they also have oh sorry go ahead is it the superman statue or the christopher reeve statue uh from what i'm reading in 1973 comic book artist neil adams was commissioned to illustrate ideas for a proposed amazing world of superman theme park and uh instead uh metropolis can metropolis illinois uh went for a Instead of a very large Superman that was going to be part of the a some sort of theme park, they went with a seven foot tall fiberglass Superman. Wow, cool. Yeah, which then was vandalized because because we can't have nice things. Right. And it, they also have a Superman's birthday sub- celebration every year, and it's it's always been a goal of mine to to see that like at some point before I die. <laughs> it's on your bucket list, is it? It's on my bucket list. I know uh, we we covered not too long ago. I think it was um, can't remember now where in Indiana, but they erected a 
um, Captain Janeway statue there. You know, it's like the future, oh, yeah. like there, like there's one in Iowa for uh, for for Captain Kirk. There's one in in Indiana for Captain Janeway. That's, nice. I mean, that's interesting. I, I don't know. There's part of me that kind of thinks, you know, maybe, maybe they should be honoring, you know, real people as opposed to honoring fictional people. But I don't know. I, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> But, you know, on the other side of it, uh, you know, some of these places, I can't, I'm trying to remember, it is a small town in Indiana. Like, they, you know, they don't have, they don't have a long list of, you know, favorite sons or daughters to, to recognize. It was, uh, oh, it was Bloomington, Indiana, uh, has okay. the Captain Janeway statue. No, it was, come on, Bloomington's got a lot going for it. Henry Blake from Nash was from Bloomington, Indiana. Wow, I just dated myself there, didn't I'm, I? I'm, yeah, but that's a, that's a geek point as well. Um, but you know, I mean, wow. listen, listen, they definitely need to put a put a Henry Blake. I mean, tragically lost over the uh, over the sea on his way to leaving Korea. I mean, oh, am, I, wow. am I dating myself now too? Yes, yes, we're okay. we're, we're in the same boat. Is it the love boat, Captain Bi- <laughs> Captain Pike, Captain Stubing? Okay, now you're just trying to go too far. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, there, there was some stand-up comedian who did a bit about um, they they put they put a, a a statue of Rocky in Philadelphia, like on mm-hmm. on the steps of that museum. Mm-hmm. Remember in the first Rocky, where he 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 runs up the steps and then he 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 raises his hands in the air. Yep. He made a statue at that spot that he's standing at in the movie. And I heard this one stand-up comedian say, can you imagine how pissed you would be if you were a real boxer from Philadelphia and they built a statue to some fictional character who, like, based on an actor who's probably never even been in a fist fight in his life? It definitely would be a little bit of a... A little bit of a slap in the face. Um, yeah, I think I remember I remember when they put that when they put that up and yeah. You know, de- it would definitely be a uh definitely would be a little bit of shock. Uh especially because I believe Philadelphia does have a pretty good history of uh professional boxers. Hey. Yeah. But I, I believe that's the, the steps to the uh Philadelphia Museum of Art. Right. Or, or their Maybe their library. I think I want to say it's the Museum of Art, but yeah. Also interesting enough, I'm pretty sure that the character of Rocky never stepped foot inside a Museum of Art. Just, just saying. <laughs> well, and it's also to have like it's funny to have the tackiest thing imaginable, like <laughs> right outside of a Museum of Art. We got this really awesome bronze statue of a fictitious boxer who, you know, ran up these steps in a movie. Right. Or it could be just a crystal pyramid that's outside of a museum in France that nobody can stand. Right. Wow. See, I'm cultured. I know what that reference is. That You're talking about the Louvre, right? I am. <laughs> Woohoo. Look at that. <laughs> Comic book guy got, got brains. I like it. Wow. <laughs> Wait a minute. You thought that was going to go over my head, didn't you? Uh, no, no. I do, I do not make those assumptions anymore. 
Okay. I, I used to, and then I got schooled, and I I know. Now wait a minute! Isn't though that crystal pyramid though the absolute best way to uh, you know break into the Louvre to steal you know the you know Mona Lisa or some sort of painting so that you can uncover the conspiracy of some sort of secret sect of of Catholic priests? Right. I would love to. I would love to try and watch you break into that thing because oh my I, god, yeah, I, I no, give that... you like five minutes, maybe. <laughs> Maybe five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were talking about uh, back previously before the Mona Lisa was was recognized for you know the the brilliant piece of art that that it, she is recognized as now. Like it got stolen, and then like the guy who stole it like returned it because they're like eh, it it had no value. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. It's like that, and uh, I, I remember, I, don't, I remember, I can't remember where I remember hearing it, but uh, The Last Supper, uh, I think it was either World War One or World War Two, uh, was hidden for several years in like a barn. Oh, because they were just worried about people stealing it? Yeah. Well, something that, that I learned not too long ago that's kind of depressing to me is that there... There are like literally thousands of Picasso paintings that are just like in warehouses, because if if they sold all of the all of the paintings that are out there, it would flood the market and kind of ruin the um the, it would ruin the appeal and and cause the, like like the prices to plummet. So I guess mm-hmm. like the Picasso family is selling like two or three of these paintings like every year. And I guess, I guess the reason why I find it depressing is that it's depressing to think that, you know, these beautiful paintings are in a warehouse somewhere, not being enjoyed by anybody. That is, that is weird. Um, I know 10, 15 years ago, uh, the Bass Museum of Art down here on Miami Beach, they had an exhibition of Picasso's sketch, uh, sketches, like from his sketchbook. Uh, right. And one of the big, like the main featured sketches, were uh, his the 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 Don Quixote uh, sketches, like him working oh, out. Right. Yeah, which was, I mean, that was like the big. But there were some others in there. But it was like I remember like walking through uh, with the person I was dating at the time, and I was just like, like even his sketches look better than anything I could ever like his his goof yeah. his doodling. Is you know is, is more impressive than anything I I could do if I sat down and really tried. So, you know, it's it's weird that, that there are certain things that come up that mess around with your distortion of time. Uh, mm-hmm. You 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 think of Picasso and you go, wow, a great painter. Uh, he he was alive in 1973. Wow, I didn't know he lived that long. That is, wow, that. 1973, he passed away at the age of 91. That that I, does mess it with messes me. with your it messes with your 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 facet of time. Yeah. Of you just you think it was so so very long ago. It, it wasn't. Is that crazy? And he he he. It's estimated that he made uh, upwards of 13,500 paintings. And around a hundred thousand prints and engravings. 
not to mention sketches and yeah doodles or whatever else it, it's just and it wasn't that long ago yeah oh, i insane. i just i you know what i i just kind of was like oh okay well that that was picasso i mean i i know dolly was was you know a bit of uh you know i don't know for some reason dolly seems a little more contemporary but he died at like age 85 almost 85 in 1989 i was gonna say i remember seeing salvador dolly like on tv shows yeah like, like a pretty young kid like what was it um what was the name of the show where like a celebrity would come on and like and like the contestants had to guess who they were uh, uh like the match show or um i don't think it was the match show i can't i can't remember the name of the game show but he was he, i remember like this this would have been like maybe 1984 1985 he was a he was like the celebrity celebrity panelist on that show yeah interesting i mean it, it, there are some things that you you know will definitely if you <laughs> if you think about too long will definitely mess with your head about time it's uh i saw one the other day it was it was a similar thing and i can't remember now but it was one of those where it's like oh yeah but you know they live to see, you know to see you know uh you know star wars debut or something like that and it was like oh no but they're you know yeah just the thing that's the thing that's blowing my mind now are all the memes i don't know if you've seen them where it's like it's now been the amount of time that's gone by between now and when like nirvana came out is the same amount of time as between when the beatles and nirvana came out yeah and um and the reason why it's it it blows my mind is like you know when you were a kid and your parents would talk about the beatles didn't it seem like it was a thousand years ago absolutely yes <laughs> or, or or my dad talking about like seeing the who uh and it's like oh man that was a million years ago and i feel about that same way i was like well you know 1991 i saw you know slayer megadeth and anthrax uh perform the the clash of the titans tour you know with alice and chains opening and it's like that was 30 years ago i, I know isn't it crazy which you know would be you know, it'd actually be longer than like my parents talking about seeing, you know, uh, in 1991 talking about seeing, you know, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, you know, by a couple years. But yeah, no, it is totally, it totally messes you up. Uh, I mean, I, I still, sorry, go ahead. No, I just, it, it's one of those where it's like, you know, I forget there was something like, you know, one of these movies, it was like, you know, this movie, you know, takes, you know, looks nostalgically back, you know, 20 years if we did that now that's that's just year 2001 <laughs> i mean i still think the year 2000 sounds like some far off distance like sci-fi year it doesn't sound like and you realize like oh god the year 2000 was 20 years ago mm-hmm. it's 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 like watching star trek and uh the original series especially and they talk about like the world war three that took place in like 1996 or something it's like Damn, how did I miss a third world war when I was in college? I mean, I know I was having a lot of fun, but hey, I think I would have noticed. <laughs> oh, you you were kind of busy. Well, I'm yeah, but still, you know, 
I think I would have rec- I, I, I would have been, I would have paid a little more attention to the eugenics wars or something, you know. I mean, right. Yeah, that's a post-atomic horror that you really need to worry about. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and what is it? Uh, first contact uh, for Star Trek is what? Like only oh, 20, 2061. NASA better get on. NASA better get on the ball. Listen, we just got to go, you know, to what was it, Idaho or Montana. And you know, start looking for the 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 slightly uh, slightly eccentric, hard drinking guy to uh, build that warp uh, build that warp capable machine. Well, there there there's one bit of news that 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 will be here. Uh, William Shatner's going into space. I saw that. So I saw that. Hey, Captain Kerr's going to go up into space. We we may as well just build the damn warp drive and be done with it. Isn't he like eighty years old? Ninety. Yeah. 90. Yes. Bill Shatner is 90 years old. Now, if I look half as good at 60 as he does at 90, I'll be happy. Absolutely. Because he doesn't um, look at day over 60. Uh, so, so just uh, looked it up. Uh, Zephram Cochran, uh, born 2030. So we are nine years away. Uh, although I guess there, there's, there's a dispute between the movie and uh the novelization which put him at in 2013 i'm gonna say uh james cromwell playing him uh in in first contact uh I'd go with that 2013 because uh 2063 would only make him 33 versus you know 50 um but yeah uh shatner going to space he's going up on is it bezos's yeah <laughs> what is his it's blue something right Blue Horizon? Blue Horizon. Uh, wow. What a crazy life. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I hear, I, I haven't got to watch it yet, but I hear um, Saturday Night Live did a, a send up on the uh, billionaires going into space uh, with like a Star Trek parody. So, going to have to check I'm that have to out. Go back and look at that. Yep. Yep. Well, Grant, um, I, I know we had a, a limited amount of time today, uh, but. Uh, we weren't really keeping track of geek points, but uh, listen, anytime you can bring up EC Comics, uh, folks who made both horror comics and Mad Magazine, I believe that makes you the geekiest this week. So where can people find you online? And more importantly, where can they find your your, your Kickstarter? Uh, being aware that we will definitely be putting links to everything in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, they can click on whatever link you put in there. Or they, if they search Memoirs of the Morbid on Kickstarter, I would imagine that it will come up. Or uh, you can always follow me on Facebook. Facebook, I'm just Grant Lankard, spelled exactly like in the title of this episode, I'm sure. And on uh, Twitter and Instagram, I'm GW Lankard, again, spelled just like... However, my name is spelled on the title of this episode. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, and like I said, that, the links will be in the show notes. Uh, the Kickstarter uh, just launched the day of recording this. So when this comes out, uh, it'll be a wee three days, three days old. So uh, plenty of time. It's ending, it's ending Halloween. So oh. you have some time. Uh, but definitely make sure to go out there. There's some interesting uh, stretch goals on it. So, uh, and we will be paying attention, keeping track of how this does, and letting our fans know 
where things stand. Uh, you know, we wish you all the luck on this. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on your show. Yeah, you're most welcome. Absolutely, it was fun. Hey, Will, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter when 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 they when they work. <laughs> um, at Geekiest Will, Joe, tell them yeah. where they can find you. Well, they can find me on Twitter at Demorgus. That's D-E-M-O-R-G-U-S. Uh, you can find this podcast across all the social platforms at The Geekiest Pod. Um, you can uh, also find me as the DM of the Not Safe for Wizards 5th Edition Actual Play podcast. Uh, you can occasionally find me at our Kayla and I's uh, thrift store, uh, Secondhand Goddess in downtown Davie. Uh, if you can't make it down there, then you can always go to uh, secondhandguys.net, uh, where you'll find the stuff that we put up on eBay, as well as uh, Kayla's uh, merch line of, of different secondhand guys stuff, including Charisma is my dump stat, Dexterity is my dump stat, Bitey. Um, and if you'd like to support the show, you can always go to shop.spreadshirt.com slash the pod and uh, get some cool merch there. Uh, and if you are interested in having me run a D&D game or, or other TTRPG, go to MindFladeMondays.com uh, and uh, book me there. So, uh, as always, we want to remind you, please follow social distancing, get vaccinated, do all the things so that this pandemic can end and we can go to cons without having to worry about being exposed to crap beyond just normal con crud. Uh, as people would say, don't be a dick. Uh, and as always, this podcast believes that Black Lives Matter, trans rights are human rights, and love is love. We thank you for listening this week, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye. Thank you so much, guys. You're very welcome. Hey, leave the world a better place than you found it, kids. It's important. Hey there, listener. Before we get out of here, just want to uh, ask you to do us a little favor. Um, two little favors. One, if you go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review there. Five stars would be great, but hey. We're leaving that up to you. And second would be share the podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, whoever you think would enjoy a deep dive into geek culture. Uh, that would definitely help us. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Armored Bear Productions.